It's the last security now of 2012, and we've got a bunch of good questions for Steve Gibson. He'll talk about a brand new version of Java, too. Does it address the security concerns previous versions have? We'll find out next on Security Now. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for security now is provided by the new Winamp for Android, featuring wireless sync and one-click iTunes import. Now with free daily music downloads and full-length CD listening parties. Download it for free at winamp.com slash Android. Video bandwidth for security now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson. Episode 383, recorded December 19th, 2012. Your questions, Steve's answers, number 157. Security Now is brought to you by Ford. Featuring Bliss, the blind spot information system with cross-traffic alert and active park assist. Check out these available features on the 2013 Ford Fusion and the 2013 Ford Taurus. And learn more at Ford.com slash technology. It's time for Security Now, the last official version or episode of 2012. With us, of course, our explainer-in-chief, Steve Gibson, the man in charge of security here at the Twit Workhouse. <laughs> Hi, Steve. Hey, Leo. I have to apologize in advance. Oh, no. If, if, if any yabba-dabba-doos are heard in the background, ah. uh, I, I changed my whole environment around and changed... Um, AV receivers and I used to have a remote control set up so that I could just easily mute the the monitor of the servers at GRC um, whenever I want to and this morning when I pressed the remote control button it you know the remote itself is no longer emitting the IR signal that my system oh. receives in order to mute so I pressed it like a few times it actually started to act up yesterday, and I so I think it, it's just dying finally because I've been pressing that a lot for many years. Um, so we've got Fred not muted, and there may be a yabba dabba do that we hear in the background. Mm. So Steve, you're missing uh, a, a great opportunity here. If anybody would like to hear yabba dabba do, all you need to do is purchase a copy of Spinrite from GRC.com. It, it is in real time. Is it, that what uh, is that what Fred does? He's signaling a a credit card purchase. Precisely, a, a transaction with the merchant that uh, moves the funds from a purchaser's credit card into our merchant account. Well, you would go yabba dabba do. It's here. The money <laughs> came. Always, always good news. <laughs> so uh, this is our last episode of uh, 2012. Very fitting. We're going to do a Q&A episode. We should yep. let you know <clears throat> we will have a new show next week, but it is not a not new content. In fact, it's it's pretty stale. Well, I can't remember whether we record whether we talked about it on air, so to speak. I think we did. In, I think we did a couple during of weeks the recording ago. last week. I think yeah, so. Yeah. So our regular listeners already know that they're going to get a wacky uh, special Christmas security now episode, a a video recording uh, made on analog tape, the so the Sony High Eight format back before we had DV or anything digital. Uh, 22 years ago when I had black hair and lots of it. <laughs> and and uh, uh, I, it's really entertaining. I, I will say again, 
although I, I, you know, I said this at the beginning of the little chunk that we just recorded for that, uh, you really need to see this. So unfortunately, I, 22 years ago, I didn't know we'd be doing an audio podcast. And so <laughs> a lot, I make a lot of use of waving my arms around. And if you're just listening to it, you won't know why they're all laughing at me. And that is the audience Oh of, yes, of, they of will. This. So, oh, they'll well, have an idea. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I, if if you can over the holidays, uh, find track down the video from Leo and uh, and watch it because I only have the audios. <laughs> How did you convert it? Did you have to buy something to play to convert it? Yeah, um, I had the original camcorder that I used, a Sony Hi8 camcorder. So the first thing I did was put them back into the same device that originally recorded them. I got nothing. Oh. And so I thought, okay, either we overwrote these, and it's very possible that we would have like put the lens, the lens cap on, and hit record, <laughs> and like you know wipe them out in order to clean the tapes, you right. know, get them ready for like something them. else. Yeah. So I was worried about that. Then I remembered that when my dad died, he had a high deck which I had grabbed, and so that was in the garage because I never throw anything away, you know, and if it might be useful someday. So I pulled it out. And it the, the, it sucked the, the cartridge in, but did, it failed to go to the next phase and wrap the tape around the helical scan head. So I tried that for a while, and I said, okay, that's dead too. So now at least I can discard two devices that I didn't know were dead. So <laughs> then, I went to Am, then I went to Amazon thinking, or maybe it was eBay. I think I went to eBay first and then Amazon, and I found a used Hi8 camcorder ah. in the... Promised me like new condition for one ninety nine. So yeah, it better purchased... be like new for that price. Holy cow! Well, I figured this was for good cause. Yeah. So I purchased it. It arrived. I put the tape in, and oh, there. Well, I don't know that I was blessed with seeing my image from twenty two <laughs> years ago, but at least there I was. So, uh, so then I have a. I can't remember the name of the company. There's a really good, well known. Oh, Canopus. Oh, Canopus. I have a Canopus. Yeah. Yes, the ADVC, we use those. Yeah. Yep. I've got a couple of those. And so I ran the analog video from that through the Canopus to turn it into DV, digitized it to hard drive. Then I used my old version of Pinnacle Studio that I have kept for years because they ruined it. And this was when it was lightweight and fast and everything. And I, you know, I put a little a little um title on the front and trimmed it and um uh, and then digitized it, and then I ran it through TPMG, you know, the 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 Pegasus Inc. Oh yeah, uh, uh, Gosh, encoder. I forgot which I still about that. Yeah, yep. You got still some old there. stuff there. <laughs> really good one. Yeah, and uh, and that converted it to a relatively high bandwidth MP4. I think it was 700 megs. It's about 45 minutes long, and then I shipped that up via Skype of all things uh, to John. Uh, at your studio. So you guys have the content. That's fantastic. Well, that's for next week. This week we've got a Q&A, our 157th. Interesting news and uh, and great feedback from our listeners, as always. Great. Well, why don't we get into the uh, the industry happenings, and uh, okay. we'll get to the uh, Q&A in a little bit. So, huge news. Uh, at least that's what you would imagine from the industry's reaction to it. I'm a little less impressed and that is that Oracle late last week updated Java 7 to update 10. Now, 6 is still there, 
and they're doing security enhancements to six and seven sort of synchronously. This is a change only to seven. Um, and I got a kick out of uh, seeing a comment. I think it was Adam Gaudiak. I think his first name was Adam. I remember it's Gaudiak, G-O-W-I-A-K, who is a Java security expert who we've spoken of in the, in the podcast before, um, who has found all kinds of problems over time in Java. His comment was, well, okay, you're still probably better off staying with six because Java 7 is so, so ripe with security flaws that even this recent change probably, you know, isn't going to help you. So here's what, here's what they did. It, and it's, it is amazing. They have... Oh, I just heard the cash register sound, so we're going to... Yep, there's Fred. Um, um, what Oracle did is, for the first time ever, in Java natively, in itself, under the security settings of the Java control panel, which, for example, Windows users can get to, under the control panel, there's, um, there's a Java control panel applet if you've got Java installed, you right there can completely disable it from your browser, from all access to your browser. Now, we've been talking about how to do this the hard way and the easy way in various ways. Uh, you know, various people have posted how-tos on their websites or their blogs and pages Um how to disable only your browser's access to Java because as a as a as a runtime engine, as a virtual machine, Java gives you cross platform. You know, there there are many things to 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 appreciate about the flexibility that it provides, especially as a corporate development language. But the problem is normally when you install it in the system, your browsers get it too. So Oracle has themselves finally stepped up and said, we will let you turn off browser access. Now, the reason I'm a little less impressed is, first of all, it's not clear that blanket disabling it, I mean, while that's best for security, if you do have a need for it in a particular app, for example, I keep hearing whenever we talk about this, people in Sweden talk about how their banks all require a Java applet in order to do online banking. Uh, okay. Well, I mean, but that's the way it is. Or uh, many people will say, oh, well, you know, all of our corporate middleware that our, that our programmers do is not only in Java, but is hosted by the browser instead of in and instead of an external container of some sort. So, there are instances where you have to have it on the browser. And so if all you have is an all or nothing, then you're back to this problem of, well, if you turn it on to use it, then you got to remember to turn it off when you don't want it and so forth. And my point is that something like NoScript in Firefox already does that. It's all, NoScript won't let Java run unless you explicitly give it permission to do so. So... And then you, of course, can train NoScript to always allow your intranet to run Java where the internet would not. 
And you could, if you had sites on the internet that you go to, like your banking sites, you might, like you, you would with with that granularity, stickily, you know, persistently enable them to run Java, but generally not anything else. So that's still probably the right way to go. But this represents a step forward. The other thing that unimpresses me is that this normal control, um, you are able to do blanket all or nothing, but they also provide a sort of a, a four-step security, like low, medium, middle or something. I don't remember what the third one was and high, where you're able to choose um, different sort of scales of settings um, from, from the control panel, but that only applies to unsigned Java applets. That is, anything signed or even self-signed is permitted to run unencumbered. So the problem there is that if this caught on and, and if this became significant, then Java exploit malware would simply be signed. It would be self-signed. And so, you know, right now it's not because no one bothers because it's an additional headache. But, you know, we've already seen instances where malware is using stolen certificates. It wouldn't even need to be stolen. They could just be digitally self-signed and this would pass right through. And, of course, Oracle is not by default going to use the kinds of settings we would suggest. They're, they don't want to suddenly have a release that breaks things. So... So these are that's the other problem, of course, is the as I coined the term, the tyranny of the default is while all this is here and it's better that it's here than not, because for security conscious users will be able to turn these things on, you know, crank up the security to, to high setting or, you know, and or use a third party tool in our browser to give us more granular control. All of that only happens for people who make those changes. Um, unlike, for example, what Facebook is now doing of moving people to SSL by default, even if they've never made the change themselves, which is really nice. Of course, that's solving a different problem. This is a, a, a serious problem. And of course, all of this is only because Java is a security catastrophe. I mean, it's just like the number one exploited add-on, a cross-platform add-on, uh, that 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 malware authors go after because it just has it's so powerful, so complex. There are side effects to the way it was designed that um, are you know I imagine Oracle is going to be chasing forever. And the fact that seven is so much worse than six demonstrates the other rule that we've often spoken of, which is that new is not necessarily better from a security standpoint. New will give you more features, but every additional set of features is more opportunity for bugs to be hidden in there that can be leveraged uh, and turned into vulnerabilities. So, you know, I wanted certainly wanted to cover this because it's been in the news. Uh, it's a nice step forward for Oracle, and I hope they're spending as much time just trying to make it more secure rather than acknowledging the fact that it isn't. I mean, it's a big acknowledgement that that they're saying we're going to allow you to disable it from your browsers. It must have come from their from corporate pressure. That's you know, I mean, it's not we little end users that they're 
that they're well. It's a little about. embarrassing for Oracle. I mean, <laughs> yeah. They, I mean, that could be some of the pressure too. Speaking of embarrassing, Samsung. Uh, it was revealed over this week, this past weekend, by a nice little hacker. Uh, has a essentially a deliberate kernel bug, which was found, which affects their more popular smartphones, the Galaxy Note 2, the Galaxy S2 and S3, those based on the, and I don't even know how to pronounce this, the Exynos. Uh, Exynos, that's what I would have guessed, or something like that. The Exynos processor and chipset. Um, I don't know now, if you can blame Samsung, though. It sounds like it was an Exynos bug. Well, it's a kernel bug. It, well, it, well, it's in the kernel, but it, apparently it involves the graphics the, the the graphics portions the the aspects of the of the kernel or or the the add-ons that that want access to graphics memory of various sorts the camera and uh, HDMI subsystem and and so forth you know in in Unix in the Unix world they've done something that was really nice um, and and clever which was all of the resources appeared to be in the common hierarchical uh, file system. So, for example, you, you know, you've got your regular drives and subdirectories and files. Those are in the hierarchical file system. But something like, even things that weren't actual, uh, weren't actual objects, like random numbers. The random number generator is, you access it as if it were, a device, you know, an object in the same unified hierarchical file system. And Linux, being a, a, a functional clone of Unix, you know, took that same concept. So, so that exists in the Linux world too, and thus in, in um, you know, the Google-derived, uh, you know, Linux core smartphone technology. Anyway, um, there is a... There's an access to physical main memory, which is slash dev slash mem. But, of course, that is so powerful because anything that opened that device could have access to all physical memory. So it is locked down tight so that only root privileged devices can do that. Only, you know, other, you know, kernel level and and sufficiently privileged processes are able to to open the slash dev slash mem pseudo device to give them visibility, you know, read write access to main memory. Well, what this hacker uh, Aleph Zane found, and he he posted it was kind of cute. Uh, you know, English is not his first language. He said, "Hi, recently discover a way to obtain root on S three." Without Odin flashing, uh, Odin being the Norse god, main the main Norse deity, and Odin is the number one popular means for rooting um, these devices. He said the security hole is in kernel, exactly with the device slash dev slash exynos hyphen mem. This device is R slash W, meaning full read write access by all users and give access to all physical memory, dot, dot, dot. What's wrong with Samsung? <laughs> it's like 
slash dev slash mem, but, but for all. And then he enumerates the libraries that he has seen that are accessing uh, that device. And he says, many devices are concerned, and I'm thinking, and many users as well. Uh, Samsung Galaxy S2, Samsung Galaxy Note 2, uh, Mizu MX, whatever that is, potentially all devices who embed Exynos, Exynos, Exynos. processor, yeah. which use Samsung kernel sources. The good news, now <laughs> he sums up his post, the good news is we can easily obtain root on these devices. And the bad is there is no control over it. So, yeah, it even works on root-locked uh, ga galaxies from Verizon. You know, yeah, um, it's the, a complete the, short circuit. Un unfortunately, this guy published this uh, proof of concept code, the code to yep. do it, without letting anybody know it's Samsung. So they, the good news is Samsung responded right away, and I'm sure that we'll have yes. a patch soon. I have one of the uh, affected phones. You know, it's interesting, though. He's right. Uh, I now have a, there's a very easy download route, <laughs> which I ran, and it rooted my phone. <laughs> Uh, and by the root way, the root exploit uh, has a, a feature to turn off the this kernel exploit. So yes. it's one way yes, to secure there, your phone uh, if you trust already, these guys. Uh, you know, yes, there are already public patches to fix this because it. I mean, it is just a mistake now. Yeah. And and you'd have to go back through and do a forensic analysis of the the development path, whether like the developer quickly created this intended to lock it down so that only the the sufficiently privileged devices or processes had access and just forgot i mean that has to be the case so it's just one of those things that you know is lurking in the samsung phones um ever since this chipset was introduced um and, and apparently having to do with graphics access and whoops that's <laughs> Ooh, what happened. hello yeah. <laughs> I, um, you know i don't i i got this from Chainfire. i've bought some uh, bought some of his software before it's on the play store so i kind of trust him and it's nice because it means you can root all of these phones by just running an application and it has a a, a little check mark to disable the exploit so you can protect yourself that way probably though most people will want to wait until samsung issues uh, uh and for what it's patch. worth they're on it big time i mean yeah, as yeah. we have just seen this is a trivial fix right so so as quickly as a company with the you know the bureaucracy that they have and their needs to to you know verify they don't break something else right. and it's done right and so right. forth as quickly as they can move they will uh but you're right for our listeners um who want to you know the 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 overall take i've seen the consensus seems to be um, if you don't download sketchy apps, you're yeah. okay. Yeah. And certainly since this became known on the weekend, there's no doubt that, you know, sketchy app land is going overtime right now to, to incorporate this in order to, you know, and, and, and put stuff out in order to try to get access to as many phones as they can before this gets locked down. Probably the smart thing to do would be to not download any new apps from Play Store or anywhere else until... There's right. a patch, and that way, right. you know, you're probably all right. And if you have to, then, you know, fix it yourself, as you just said. Yeah, the if you go to XDA developers, the root, the, the code to root it is easy. I mean, that's the side effect that's great. It's, it's a one-click root now for all of those phones, the Exynos 4-based phones. So that's easy. <laughs> yeah. Um, you might want to bring this link up, Leo, while all we right. talk about it. Sure. Uh, under the category of YAC, which stands for Yet Another CAPTCHA, we have Mint Eye, 
at minteye.com. This is hard. Um, and, well, okay, so it's kind of clever. What their, their, their pitch oh, is I get it. I that, get it. that you just have a slider and the slider changes a distortion, a, a, like, like a, a, a single point sort of sinkhole, you know, gravity spiral distortion of an image. And as you slide the slider back and forth, it, the, it, it, it winds this distortion one way or the other. And your goal as the prove you are a human and not a computer is looking at the image, we can instantly tell, you know, yeah. what our slider is doing. And and so and but, but the clever part is they're suggesting that sites that want to protect themselves with captures also tie into advertising networks. That's what's so interesting the, it, about this is these are ads. Once you solve yes. it, yes. And so you're you you it's also it's clearly got your eye on the ad, so you don't glaze over and out you don't focus on it. You know, basically you're resolving an advertisement <laughs> yourself terrible. and you have to in order to move forward. <laughs> now, the thing that doesn't impress me about it is that the slider has only 30 right. settings. And 30 is not a big number as we know, which means that something that was just trying to brute force post on a forum that was protected by this could just choose a random setting for the slider and one thirtieth of the time it's going to succeed that's the problem with this solution as opposed to i mean they, they talk about the impossible to solve captures that we have all encountered i mean some of these things they're they make you feel like it's your fault that you you cannot possibly figure out you know what this high heavily distorted string of characters is supposed to be and they quote some statistics like uh, a failure rate of 75% by people and a success rate of 30% by computers for old style captures, you know, the, the distorted text captures. And they, they talk about a 98% success for people of their, you know, un, un, untwist the twister. Uh, the twisted up ad approach. So anyway, I wanted to bring it to our listeners' attention because it's kind of cute. Um, I also do think that this would not be difficult for a generic image algorithm-based solver to find. And there does also seem to be sort of a dead spot on the proper solution. As I was moving the slider back and forth, it unwound, but it seemed kind of like the correct setting yeah. more than the other yeah. ones. It's stupid. and like this is just yeah. a way to put an ad on the page. <laughs> and we know that anything a human can solve can be solved because you just redirect the capture to a human and let them solve it. Yeah, <laughs> and, and actually this would be really quick to solve. Yeah, it'd be you know, fast. You get real you get real good at un unspinning the <laughs> truck through the these, yeah. While going through our mailbag uh, yesterday for our Q and A, I found a note from Brian in Carlsbad, California. Um, and I, and he, I just wanted to, I like this because it was a follow up on. Remember that we talked about FreeBSD having discovered that their servers had been too. I think it was two of their servers had been compromised, and they were very worried over anyone who downloaded FreeBSD between two dates could have been 
um, subjected to you know an, an unknown exploit because they had not yet had a chance to figure out what was going on. So he wrote, hi, Steve, regarding the news of intrusion at free BSD servers you reported in Security Now 379, I shared with a colleague who reported back to me with a November 22 update, which I had missed, which is why I wanted to share it with our listeners, stating verification of CTM source trees has been completed against the subversion tree, confirming that there are no differences between the two. Our experimental Git repository has been similarly verified. Um, so it looks like that is okay. No one who did get FreeBSD during that time uh, would have risked being in trouble. Um, I wanted to give a, a moment for uh, a update on the Quiet Canine Project. Um, about 100 of our listeners so far have reported problems with dogs and an interest and willingness. And in some case, I mean, it's they're like to their wits end. They've all they've bought all the other devices available. None of them work. Um, they're 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 like on the verge of moving because they're that the dog bark, the neighbor's barking dog problem is so bad. There's one person who's who's being harassed by chihuahuas. Uh, that like run around him and he's sure that if he didn't keep his eye on him, they would nip him. And, and having read all these, I found that my, my feeling about the problem has evolved. I mean, I don't have a dog problem, as we know that my best friend Mark does, and, and we've solved it. Um, I was telling you before we began recording, Leo, that he's only had to use that, that, <laughs> that Mega Blaster unit that I first built for him a month ago three times. Um, but when he does, and it's just for the merest little blip that he that he sounds it, the, these two little collies, he says it's like the Keystone Cops with them like cr crawling all over each other, trying to squeeze both of them at the same time back through the doggy door that only has room for one of them. And he says it's pretty funny because, I mean, they just they absolutely want to leave the area. We um, should underscore so, this isn't harmful to the dogs or no, even no. Uh, even distressing to the dogs. It's just like shouting at them. Yes. And, and it well, surprises it, them. I think it's better than shouting because shouting will will anger them and upset them. This is alien. This is like nothing in their experience. It's completely foreign. And and so it's the surprise value. It's the what the heck is that? And so Whoa. they just they just want to get away. Right. I mean, yeah, he's doing it from his second store, his, his his second floor window down to the ground floor. So it's not at all, you know, harmful. And believe me, they don't stick around. So um, where I am at the moment is we had a huge breakthrough um, this weekend. Uh, the design no longer uses or needs a microcontroller at all. It is a... It's self-oscillating rather than needing to program a microcontroller and use that as the oscillator. Um, the parts cost is now less than $5, including the tweeter. Um, it costs more for shipping than it does for the parts. Um, but, uh, oh, and people are building them. I'm seeing pictures now. One guy's built, built one in, into a flashlight form factor that he calls the the canine flashlight, I think, or I think that's what he called it, but um, it's still in flux there. I've, I've seen some complaints from people who come who talk about how disorganized the group 
seems, and he just wants to get a parts list. Now, Leo, I put some links here in the show notes. You can bring them up for people who are looking at the video. Um, you can see that I have the waveforms that uh, it produces that I was staring at last night, and I managed to reduce its power consumption by a third so that it will last 50% longer than it would have before. Uh, the schematic exists and the parts list and so forth, but it's still in flux. So, so for everyone who is interested, who would, I mean, we've had some, I've seen some neat mail. There are some parents who, because this is so simple, thinks it, think it would be a great project to work on with their kids to sort of introduce them to electronics and electricity and so forth. And it, it would be because it is so simple and it does something. Um, all of this will end up being organized and living at GRC. So they, the Google groups only or group only really makes sense for people who are actively following the postings. You can't just sort of come by and like have everything laid out for you. I will be doing that at GRC as soon as this settles down, but I'm still making changes. You know, just yesterday, as I said, I reduced its power consumption by a, by a third. So it's too soon for people who want to be on the bleeding edge. People are building these things and providing feedback. But, you know, there will be some blood. So, um, you know, I mean, if you poke yourself with a resistor lead. Um, <laughs> no, nothing, the dogs will not bleed. I just want to emphasize this. <laughs> no. There's no, no bleeding dogs in this. No. Yeah. So anyway, I'm I'm. I'm really, when I'm listening to people about who are being bitten and we have mail carriers who are really being harassed and, and, and people who, I mean, their life is being ruined by a next door neighbor dog who is out in the backyard all day long. Sometimes they like someone lets their dog out at 2.30 in the morning and it starts barking. They've got newborns that cannot sleep that are being awakened at all hours by dogs barking. I mean, it's just, I've really developed a much better sense for, you know, that we're, we're the victims, unfortunately, or oddly in this, which seems so counterintuitive, but yeah. um, it's just, you know, dog barking is, is a huge problem for people. So anyway, I don't know how this is going to develop, where this is going to go. I don't really want to be in the hardware manufacturing business. I was there once with the light pen and I did that. And I don't think that's where I want to be. So we'll, I know I'm, I'll play this by ear. I'm, I'm committed to building some prototypes for our listeners because I want to find out whether this is effective. You know, that's the next step. So I'm just sort of taking this one step at a time. I want to see, like, do dogs get used to it? Is it initially startling and then not, no, but not after a week or two? Um, can dogs be trained? People want to, I would say it's about 50-50 neighbors' dogs and people's own dogs who have some behavior that they want to curtail. So, you know, well, I, I just don't know yet, but that's the nature of research and development is we'll just go one step at a time. Awesome. Um, you and I discussed before we began recording, but I wanted to for our listeners, uh, that you finished season two of homeland yeah yes we're not gonna spoil only, anything here which you could have only done on sunday because i put this note in the show notes because season two just finished yes and i wanted to say at no point was this a disappointment what a great show um, what a great show. yeah 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 so <laughs> that's I'm all sure we can say be, <laughs> i'm sure it will be season three i don't know there, what's next. there is going to be a season three because there's a they did a little uh, a piece at the end 
with the uh, showrunners. They have Showtime as a this is on the Showtime network. The Showtime as a showrunner show, and he talked about next season and what might happen. Oh, I got to go find that. I didn't see that, Leo. It's on the on demand portion. Uh, yeah, he said basically. Um, no, I'm not going to say anything. Okay, because you have anyway, to. You shouldn't watch I it do- because it does. It is a little spoilery. I have I have heard through Twitter and through email many people who have been induced to see it thanks thanking or thanking us for for bringing it to their attention. Yeah. They're really really liking it. So for what it's worth, uh, I think it's a it's an entertaining program. Yeah. Speaking quite, of entertaining, yes, I did run across a note I wanted to share because it ties into sci-fi and one of Twit's sponsors, Audible. Uh, James Tisdale in Waterloo, Ontario, Canada, wrote, the subject was David Weber's Honor Harrington books, Blessing or Curse? And, of course, that subject caught my caught my attention. He sent us on, on the 12th of December. He said, hi, Steve. i finally gotten around to taking your suggestion to, he has in quotes, read. <laughs> he says, parens, I listened to the audio books. David Weber's Honor Harrington books. I've gone through the first three books so far. And each one has me wanting more. As I am reading, in quotes, them, I am as happy as a tree cat with celery, which Honor Harrington readers will know what that means. But I have to curse you at the end of each book, as I have to then wait the rest of the month for my next audible credits so that I can get the next book, though I wouldn't want it any other way. I have to say that I think this series is one of the best works that Audible Frontiers has done and would suggest that anyone wanting to read these books think about going the audible.com way. From this long-time Audible user, these audiobooks are five stars all the way. Great. <laughs> Great. And and just on, on the topic of, quote, reading, unquote, um, I also saw Preston in Silicon Valley. He wrote, subject, I'm reading, no, enjoying a great book. He said, hi, Steve. A super quick note about audiobooks. When I started, quote, reading, unquote, audiobooks, I would say to my wife, I just started reading, insert book title here. And she would jokingly complain, you're not reading it. You're listening to it. We debated the topic. And finally, I said, fine, I'm enjoying a new book. Ever since I used the the term enjoying, and every time we both laugh a little. Love the show, including the sci-fi, Hush Puppy, and other talk, Preston. I like it, enjoying. And I asked you last week about the iPad mini. Uh, I found myself near an Apple store, so I went in. And... I haven't changed my decision, which we sort of, you and I came to, which is they are sure to increase the resolution, so why buy one now? But I just wanted to say that what struck me more than the size was its weight, which is light. Yeah. Yeah. It is, I mean, I'm an iPad, I've owned multiples of every version, and, you know, they're not light. Um. This is really light. As I was holding it, I was thinking, oh, my God, this is, you know, here's everything that the iPad is, and it doesn't weigh much. So I was, I was very impressed with that. I would love to have it get 
boy, if it could get a pixel resolution of the regular size iPad in that size so that it was super retina, um, that would be something. Well, I think it will be retina. In fact, now, and this will really peeve people off if this is true, we're starting to hear rumors that Apple may rev the the uh, Mac, the iPad uh, mini sooner than later, like sooner than September. And if they do put out a retina like in May or June, there are going to be some angry people. Angry not people. Me. Not me. Angry. Now, the note I have... Yeah, because you didn't buy one. About. I mean the ones who did. <laughs> yes. Oh, I know what you mean. <laughs> angry. The note that I have that would normally talk about Spinrite is about everybody. Oh. And I just liked it. The subject was nothing but love. Now, I didn't know what this was about. This was in the mailbag from Jason in Pennsylvania. He says, nothing but love. And he said, hey, Steve, GRC gang, Leo, Tom, etc. I know that this is technically the wrong feedback form for mentioning the podcast, but I'd like to address everyone and I figured this might be a good way to do it. Spinrite has saved my data more times than I kind of care to admit. I do have backups now, but there is simply nothing like the speed of a Spinrite recovery compared to the daunting download task of getting those backups back from my cloud provider. Even a Spinrite run that's extended saves time. Also, the podcast has been awesome, he has in all caps. I'm quite addicted and really look forward to listening on my favorite commute, or, sorry, listening on my horrible commute or during my workouts. It is clear to me that Steve, Leo, Tom, and the rest of the gang at GRC and Twit are making this world a better place to live in. Seriously, I'd rank your efforts high among the great things that make life worth living. Oh, wow. And before you write me off as nuts, mm. stop and think about that. Isn't it always the small things that matter the most True. when we recognize these kinds of things? If I wasn't fed, sheltered, and clothed, my, my opinion might change. Yeah. But that would be because of my perspective. From where I sit now, joy comes from different places. Anyway, I felt the need to express thanks to everyone listed above. You have all made a big difference. And if it is much and it is much appreciated. Please keep up the good work. Never stop, etc., etc. Also, I'm a proud Spinrite owner, ready to cram money in your pocket for any upgrades or new products you create. I'm also a slave to buying everything advertised on Twit. So please tell Leo to take it easy. I do have my limits. If you read this on air or post this someplace, please don't reveal my email. Of course not. No, so never do thank that. you, Jason. That was a very nice, neat, holiday-spirited note that I know we all appreciate. Jason, when's the last time you bought a car? Actually, Leo, I, I ran across one. There was someone who did buy a Ford. It was a Ford Focus they purchased. Initially, uh, he said that, that, that his wife couldn't care less about sync. She didn't get it. She didn't. And now they're apparently looking at replacing their second car. And she doesn't want a car that doesn't have it because she's completely hooked on it. That was an email that I encountered last night. Oh, I, I get them all the time. Like this yeah. one I got three days ago from um, Serender. Thanks to Twitter a few months back, I decided to buy a 2012 Ford Fusion, and he shared a picture with us. 
Uh, I get these uh, tweets all the time. People people buy Fords, uh, and every, you know, because they hear about all the cool technology. And actually, I can't really blame you. There's some cool stuff in these Fords, like this this Bliss. Let me let me send you to a website where you can read up on the technology. That's one of the things I like about Ford. It's it's a car company, but it's a car company that believes in technology. I think some credit to its CEO Alan Mulally, who joined Ford. He's an engineer. He joined them from uh, Boeing a few years ago, and I think he's really turned the company around. Partly with this focus on uh, technology inside the car, things like the blind spot information system, Bliss. Uh, has you've got two devices? I don't know if they're. I guess it's radar. Yeah, radar in the rear quarter panels of the vehicle on each side that detect. You got radar. In, did you get that radar in the rear corner panels of your car that detect vehicles in the blind spot? They give you an audible alert and blink the uh, the side mirrors to let you know there's somebody in your blind spot. It also works when you're backing out of a parking space and your view is obscured by a larger vehicle. That is very, very cool. That's called Bliss, the Blind Spot Information System. And then you got to take a look at this. I drove this a couple of years ago. I drove a Ford Flex with the uh, Active Park Assist. And this really is almost a miracle. So you push a button in the center console. You say, I want to park. You're driving through town. It looks at all the parking spaces as you pass them. When it sees one that will fit, it says, whoa, got one. Pull forward. You do. It says, okay, Take your hands off the wheel. It now operates the car to park, parallel park, perfectly. It is a little spooky. The steering wheel goes zzzz, and in 24 seconds, you're parked within inches of the curb perfectly. That is amazing. And it works every time. I got to say, this is a very cool technology. One of literally thousands that are in each and every Ford vehicle. My next Ford is going to be that 2013 Ford Fusion, the plug-in hybrid. The 2013 Taurus also can uh, get the Bliss and the uh, Active Park Assist. Go to Ford.com slash technology, or better yet, go to a Ford dealer near you and take a test drive. Say, I want to try out the Bliss. I want to park this sucker. I want to let the car park itself. Uh, it's just it's just amazing. I love it. I love it. Ford.com slash technology. We thank them so much for their support all year long. Of our program, you know your blinking lights have uh, have stopped. Oh, you're right. Did we it, had we had. <laughs> you have a PDP we crash. A, we had no, no. We had another little brief power failure a couple uh, nights ago, and I had to go go around and reset all the clocks, and I, I just forgot my blinking lights. So, I'll, I'll <laughs> what is that it. you got there? Is that a tuba? Um, <laughs> this just came in the mail. The, the doorbell rang as you were starting your Ford commercial. Yeah. This is the neatest company. I don't know if if. People know about it. The company, I think they're in Minneapolis, is DigiKey. Um, they are a fabulous online electronic parts supplier um, that uh, can ship overnight. Or I, I finally got myself under control because I was spending way too much money on on overnight shipping because I was, you know, wanting this stuff immediately. But all of the parts for the uh, the Quiet Canine Dog Whistle project will be sourced from. This one company. Oh, this so, is just like a toy store. Oh my God, Leo! Oh. It is you can't, everything you can imagine. Oh. Massive inventory, quantity discounts. I mean, I would imagine major companies might be sourcing stuff from them. Um, but uh, so you're able to just to go through, 
use an online uh, ordering process, tell them how much you want. They put it all together. You tell them how you want it shipped, and uh, they're just fabulous. In fact, something I asked for, they were – it turned out they didn't have by the time they were trying to pick it. They phoned me and said, uh, Steve, you know, this is DigiKey. We just wanted to let you know that – or hope that this wasn't a critical component that you needed because, you know, we don't have it. But we'll ship everything else, and if if you know if there's an, a, a replacement that we can use, you know, give us a call and we'll we'll get it to you immediately. So they're just they're an amazing company, d i g i k e y dot com. And uh, so when I finally put together the whole bill of materials for people who want to build these themselves, it'll just be a parts list from DigiKey. You go there, put it in, and you'll end up essentially with a kit just uh, arriving at your doorstep. This is awesome. Look at this. Yeah, it's. I mean, anything you can imagine. I'm, you know, I, 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 I put in, you know, n-channel enhancement mode MOSFET, and bang, there's like all the ones they have. You, you're able to like then winnow down a huge array based on characteristics. You can sort the columns. It's just, it's, it's. <laughs> there's also Mauser, M-O-U-S-E-R dot com. They're sort of the DigiKey and Mauser are the two. Uh, distributors that have really built themselves a beautiful online presence for for doing this kind of thing. You did not just oh. learn about this company, as somebody in the chat says. Obviously, I think you. Oh no, they're. Been- <laughs> I think you've known about them for a while. No, it's why I can I can talk about I can state their reliability and reputation is that I mean you know they're my go to place when I need you know a, a particular widget. Well, and you know you're we no longer really have electronic stores around. You know, Radio Shacks are kind of cheesy, and they've pretty much always been a little too consumer-ish. We we happen, because we're in a particular location in Southern California, there's one store called Marvac in Costa Mesa that I do drive to when I want something, and I'm willing to go, you know, half an hour in both ways to get it. Um, but again, they've got limited inventory, nothing like DigiKey. So if I... What I ended up doing is if I order by they're, – <clears throat> they're so good that they will accept orders up to – I think it's 8 p.m. Central Time, so even late in the day. But I know that if I order, for example, the stuff that just came now, I ordered Monday morning. So they got it in the – and this was by mail. So this is priority mail, which is the least expensive way to ship it. It's like $5, and if they ship it Monday. I get it in California on Wednesday as you know at noon. So anyway, love them. That's cool. You're such a geek. Shall we get <laughs> you're such a geek. Shall we get to the uh, questions? Yeah, we'll do as many as we can. We've had a lot of fun up to now on the podcast. Yeah, we got about so, 20 uh, minutes left. That's Yeah. <laughs> That'll be enough. We'll enough do what time. we can. Yeah. All right, let me see here. Uh this is Oh, actually number 1 is just so funny. Oh, Leo. Oh, anyway, yeah. All right. <laughs> Scrolling down. Where are the questions? Uh, they're on a different PDF. Ah, there you there you go. That would explain it. That would, that would explain it because I have the long Oracle Java notes. That you uh, I decided not to drag everybody through that. Thank because... you. <laughs> Thank you. They can read those on their own. We don't we don't need to read those to them. Let's see. Q&A show notes questions. There it is. Let's op- let's open that sucker up. Oh, goodness. Oh, I did open it. I already had it. Why don't I see it? These computers are Question one. Yes, it is. I can't figure out how to use a computer. This is a listener-driven potpourri, according to Steve. 
Wes in Indianapolis inadvertently interfered in his family dog's business. Hmm. Hi, Steve. I'm a big fan and I was just listening to the Security Now episode on DTLS when I heard you mention how old CRT TVs produce a certain very high-pitched whine while they're operating. Remind me of when I was younger and we had an ancient-looking CRT television in the living room. It was the kind with customizable buttons that you had to dial in to the station you wanted to watch or the cell phone conversation you wanted to hear, but that's another matter. Although, thankfully, it came with a handy three-button, count them, remote. On Sunday morning, I was playing Super Mario World. My dog came into the room to perform some lewd acts with the furniture. I told him to stop, but he wouldn't do it. Yeah, I even threw a toy to him to try to distract him, but he was rather focused and engaged. I wonder why. In a, a lovely piece of couch. <laughs> In a fit of exasperated acceptance, I pointed the remote at him and pressed the power button prepared to dryly complain to no one in particular about how the remote was broken and at the very least entertain myself. However, oddly enough, the remote wasn't broken at all. After I pressed the button, he jumped backwards and looked around as if he were stung by something. I tried it again with the same result. Then to my dog's chagrin, I did some further useful experiments. In short, the effect was reliable up to 10 feet while the remote was pointed at him and to a lesser extent when pointed at him through a wall. I decided not to do it again because it obviously upset him. But maybe you could find use for this in building a more compact version of your PDK. I figure with a bit of amplification, you could ring up a popular device, a pocketable device with a decent range for dealing with aggressive dogs out on the streets. You could sell it to mailmen all over the country. Unfortunately, I don't recall the brand of the TV, and I don't know how standardized remote control technology was in the 90s. But maybe there's something here. Thanks for the great podcast, Wes. That is bizarre. So, it must have been an audio t uh, remote. Well, do you remember? Yes. First of all, I thought maybe we need to rename this the Canine Coitus Interruptus device. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the, the original remote controls had three or four big stiff buttons. And when you right. pushed it, a, a striker hit a steel bar right. that emitted an ultrasonic tone. Oh, my goodness. And and so there was a receiver in the TVs with, with four tuned circuits, each one that would respond to a different tone. And you so one was like alternate action on, off. Um, and then, or maybe it was like channel up, channel down. I mean, cha one was channel up, one was channel down, one was volume up, one was volume down. But you would go, you, you would kind of go clunk, 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 and, you know, and the TV would respond each time because you were banging this bar and it would send out a very high-pitched tone. And clearly what we had was a very, very, he arguably was the originator of the, uh, the quiet canine dog whistle or, you know, uh, you know, it was it was exactly that effect, which See, I just got a kick I out. I hope this won't throw you, but Bazinga tells me that there is on Amazon something called the Pet Agree Dog Training Ultrasonic Aid. Yeah, also um, use in training cats. It says, yeah, it doesn't upset me at all. Um, and in fact, it's one of the reasons I want to thoroughly beta test this because. Many of our listeners, being techie people by nature, yeah. have already bought every one of these things. They've ah. sent me links to things that I've seen. And remember that I mentioned I had bought a whole bunch of these things from Mark because I'd just rather buy something for him right. 
you know, then have to go go through inventing and building one. Right. And but none of them work. And all of our listeners report nothing, uh, nothing has ever worked for them. So, it, so they a big just aren't question, willing to put enough power behind it. I really think that's the case. Yeah. The the other thing they do is they pitch them much too high. Uh, there was something Mark had called a dazer that actually I got for him. Yeah, that's and this, the, da- the dog dazer two ultrasonic dog deterrent. Yes. Now the problem is. That's at 25 kilohertz. I've measured it, and uh, that is way too high. Um, dog hearing actually peaks down around 5 to 10 kilohertz, and then it does extend to like 15 and 20, but it then begins to drop off very quickly. Many of these companies pitch theirs much too high. Just I don't know if they didn't do their research or what. But so that's why I'm deliberately at about 15 kilohertz is to definitely stay down where I'm sure we have a sensitive receptor. There's a review by a, a postal carrier who's of the dog Dazer 2. It says it works uh, only on four out of the 1,000 dogs he's tested it on. It stops about half of all dogs from barking for a few seconds, about 30% of dogs from barking as long as I hold the button. It quiets yep. my day, but... I'd only use it as a primary defense if I have a can of. And mace we do have a few up. postal carrier listeners who yeah. have asked for and will receive a, a beta device. Postal carriers, uh, we should point out, do carry mace f- for this. No kidding. Yeah. So if they're attacked by dogs, they have uh, something to spray them on. This would be more humane than oh. macing a dog. Oh I, my goodness, yes. I mean, yeah. if it's effective, and the other thing too is that I've been considering using a, a, a microcontroller to so that it only generates a short burst. There is no need to, like, spray anything with this. Right. I mean, my intention is to have it be so loud that you want a, you want a shock value, a startle value, not to hurt anything. You just want to say, okay, knock it off. Right. And, and, here, and something brief is better than that. Thanks from to Eric Duckman and Wikipedia is the Zenith Space Command Remote Control with four buttons... Oh, there it is. Yes. Each of which strike a bar and make a tone that you can't hear. And you know that I took mine apart and my family was not happy. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Moving along to question two. John Hewen in Austin, Texas. Why not start with TCP and just switch to UDP when you're using DTLS? Given that one of the design goals of DTLS was to reinvent as little as possible... Why couldn't the design have been to perform the standard SSL TLS handshake? <laughs> I, I'm getting the acronym hiccups over TCP the way we always have, and then use the symmetric key negotiated in that session for the UDP session. To me, that would seem to require the least change of all, since there'd be no need for the mini TCP tweaks to UDP and for applications like VoIP. I can't imagine that the extra time required to complete a TCP handshake up front to negotiate a key rather than doing everything over UDP would be significant. Is there some issue with the way connections are handled by operating systems and or firewalls that would prevent switching over from TCP to a UDP session while retaining the symmetric key negotiated over TCP that way? And for that matter, if UDP is only now gaining the benefits of SSL TLS, how has Skype been providing encrypted conversations for so long? Are they running a proprietary encryption scheme? Thanks for providing such a consistently fantastic show. This uh, email from the one listener who understands this show. (laughs) 
because I don't understand the email. I was very impressed with John's question. Interesting question, so, but can I boil it down? It basically, we don't negotiate a new key. We use the key we've already negotiated, the symmetric key. Well, the, right? he's, exactly, he's exactly right that the guys that were trying to do uh, essentially SSL over UDP, they ended up trying to reuse all of the existing good technology and proven that was designed, that was developed for SSL over TCP. But doing that does, because TCP offers a reliable transport, they had to add things to UDP, especially during the setup handshake, to sort of simulate the reliability of TCP in the ways that I described in that podcast. And so John is, I mean, John, it's a very interesting proposition. That is, because their goal was to not reinvent the wheel, why not just negotiate a TCP connection, then take the context, the, the, the SSL context, which you negotiate from that, and move it over to a UDP session. So you let TCP do what it's best at, which is the reliability that you need during the SSL negotiation, then take the information both endpoints obtain, which is used for the, the subsequent crypto, and move that over to, to UDP. Um, I actually had a different solution that I would probably argue is better than any of those. I mean, even, what, uh, even better than DTLS uh, that I'll talk about in a second. But John is right. If he when he suggests that maybe like is it something about operating systems or firewalls or something, and the and the reason is that you you can't move context between flows between endpoints is that many systems are behind load balancers. There'll be a there'll be like a a firewall load balancer which receives the incoming traffic and then redirects it to a given server behind. Sometimes those are based on the instantaneous load that all of the servers behind them have, so or the load that they're under, so that this, this switch will, you know, in, in, in like a Google or an Amazon or, you know, any big data center, there's normally a, a load balancer. Um, so it will choose which server is going to get this, is going to handle this connection and, and then remember that statefully. So it's very possible that one server might get the TCP negotiation and then when you establish another connection that ends up going to a different server. There's normally no reason why that wouldn't be okay. So, so that's one of the problems. The other way these things work is sometimes is that, that they will, rather than using dynamic load balancing, they're just trying to evenly spread the traffic across a set of servers that are behind the, this sort of this deconcentrating switch. What they do is they'll take the, the IP and the, the source IP and source port and often the protocol, and they will mix them together and essentially hash them and end up with a like a one of ten or one of eight, and then that determines which one of the eight ports the traffic 
is emitted from going to one of eight servers that are behind there. That way, sort of statistically, all the users on all the different ports all over the internet end up randomly spreading themselves between servers. And the beauty is any one user always gets assigned to the same server that is for a connection. But when, when we allocate TCP and UDP connections from our operating system, we talked about this years ago, we, we sort of march up through the available ports. So, you know, port um, 2468 will be used, then 2469, then, then, then 2470 and 2471. So the point is that there isn't a way for the application to say, I, I really need to be on the same port that I was on on TCP under UDP. That just that's done by the TCP IP stack in the kernel, and the application layer doesn't have any control over it. So, yes, that's why they didn't make that change. The thought that I had was that a modific an interesting modification to TCP could easily be made, which is to tell TCP to shut down all of its reliability nonsense. That is, you establish a TCP connection, and then you say, I want to go asynchronous. And essentially, you turn the, TC the existing TCP connection into a UDP connection by, by telling both ends, okay, don't care about uh, buffering packets, don't care about lost packets, don't care about out-of-order arrival, just uh, we just want a, a, a clean unencumbered, unbuffered unpatched up pipe between endpoints. And that would actually be something pretty simple to do. So maybe someone will do that, which would be cool. Bruce Barnett, Albany, New York, writes uh, he's, uh, here's two great low-cost items for the home user who wants a data diode? It's from greatscottgadgets.com. The Ethernet Throwing Star. And you can Google Ethernet Throwing Star if you want. It's a land tap that looks uh, kind of like a ninja throwing star, uh, exactly. actually. Um, he says there's a kit for $15 and a fully assembled version for $40. It's great for network sniffers, intrusion detection systems, etc. Splits two way traffic into the original two-way and two additional one-way connections that have to be merged to fully decode protocols. This is a preferred solution because programs like Wireshark can have buffer overflows and they run as a privileged process. Uh, a malformed packet can compromise a sniffer, but the diode prevents that machine from interfering with the monitored network. Keep up the good work, Steve. We enjoy the show. There it is, the I like Throwing Star Land Tap. Yeah, I like this because essentially, you know, I've been very impressed with the technical level of our listeners. I mean, they've they've jumped on, for example, the Quiet Canine project, and a bunch of them are building these things, even though the design isn't finished. They just they don't mind being on the bleeding edge. I remember when I talked about this a year ago and found that cool little Espresso LX board. You know, we kept we got our our listeners kept buying out the supplier because, and I was I thought, wow, we got a lot of techy, hardware-capable, you know, interesting, experimenting-oriented people. Um, we talked about the idea of modifying Ethernet cables, but this has done it in a very simple way. 
um, you you may be wondering why they use the term throwing star until you see this thing, because it's a, the the PC board is in the is a wacky sort of four pointed star shape. You and then with the little kit, you just get the Ethernet connectors which you mount on the four points of the star, and two of them are a pass through, and the other two monitor the traffic in each of those two directions. So. Anyway, the point was that if anyone was interested in the notion of sniffing Ethernet in a one-way direction, the so-called data diode, as, as the term was used by that company we talked about a couple of weeks ago, who've done that at the protocol level, if you're interested in doing it at the hardware level, uh, this does it for you for 15 bucks if you, have, if, if you have a soldering iron or 40 if you don't. They sell it at uh, the uh, Hack 5 store, Darren Kitchen and... Uh Shannon Morse have a video oh, cool. on it and everything, and uh, they sell the kit for fifteen bucks. Not very expensive, and the assembled version is forty dollars. Uh, if you don't want to take a soldering iron in hand, that's, right? That's neat. Yeah. Very cool. Jim Sauber, Minneapolis, Minnesota, has a suggestion about show links. Steve and Leo, listener for several years, insert usual stuff here. Steve brings <laughs> up many interesting websites during the show and refers listeners to his Twitter feeds for the links. Since often people listen to the show or read the notes weeks or years later, relying on Twitter for the many links seems to leave us with the task of searching through your Twitter feed for the right dates. Also, if Twitter someday disappears or decides to truncate your old tweets, these will be lost forever. For the sake of at least posterity, I request that you include the links in your show notes or copy and post your relevant tweets on your site so they'll live forever as we know your notes will. Looking forward to many more years of security now and other great Twitch shows. Thanks for everything. And, you know, I had not thought about that, but he is completely right. Twitter is inherently, you know, recency-based. And I'm always saying, I'm, and I'm thinking, to people who listen to the podcast in the next few days, since I'm not typically frantically tweeting, the the things that I post for the show won't have been pushed far back into my Twitter history. But on the other hand, we're also encouraging people constantly who just joined the podcast and find out about it. We're saying, hey, and by the way, all 380 prior episodes are over here. But it's certainly the case that on all those times a year later that I refer to things, there's no way to find it on Twitter. So I'm going to ask Elaine if she would grab the links at the time that she's doing the transcription of the podcast and just embed them in the podcast. I don't think that would be a problem for her. I'm paying her by the hour, and it shouldn't shouldn't uh, delay her very much. That would capture them at the time. Now, we still have the problem of the links themselves becoming stale over time, but that's at least we've done everything we can. So um, I, I'm going to... When I send this off to her, I mean, she's hearing this right now. <laughs> oh, you trans- want me to do that, Steve? Okay. Because <laughs> she's transcribing this. So I would like her to do that. I don't have any this week, but uh, in, in the future, uh, I, I know that she's a little bandwidth constrained, but, you know, pulling up my Twitter feed is, takes no bandwidth, and uh, and that would be great. So thank you, Jim, for the suggestion. That's a, a, an improvement we will incorporate. Do you, and uh, thank you, Elaine, for doing that. Do you sell, send Elaine what you send me, uh, the show notes before each show? Yes, she gets that all, too. Because the links are in there, too. Yes. Oh, good point. Yeah, yes. She doesn't have to go anywhere. Right. She already got them. <laughs> Question 5, R. Morton in Round Rock, Texas, home of Dell Microcomputers. 
I think that's about all that's there. Wonders about Google and SSL certificates up the wazoo. Uh, Steve, as you suggested, I have Certificate Patrol installed in Firefox, and I have a Gmail account. Lately, I've been spending an enormous amount of time in China. I think he does work for Dell. And as such, I keep a very tight rein on Internet usage. Within the last six to nine months, it seems every time I visit Gmail, Certificate Patrol warns me of a slew of changed certificates, which I ignore while in China. But then today, after checking Gmail at home in the U.S., I receive an alert that Google is now a certificate authority, having replaced Thought and issuing their own certificate. That expires three months sooner than the Thought certificate. What am I to believe? Is Google going rogue or is someone trying to spoof them? Please, what's going on? So uh, that certainly was news to me. So I established an SSL connection to Google and what I saw was a little different that, than what um, our listener was was seeing. However, I should mention I was a fan of Certificate Patrol. I loved it, and in fact, it's that it's through Certificate Patrol that I found Digicert, that is now my certificate provider. I really love them, and it was by seeing all of like you know Facebook uses Digicert, so I can too. Um, and I'm so happy that I left uh, VeriSign for, for this because it's just, you know, the VeriSign was becoming increasingly difficult to deal with. However, I was forced to stop using Certificate Patrol because of Google. Oh. Um, Google is synthesizing certificates at an insane rate, so much so that that as exactly as our listener reports – it was certificate patrol was popping up all the time and there is an ability or a, a checkbox to say you know ignore further notices from this provider but whatever google was doing was still upsetting certificate patrol so i just said i mean i put up with it for quite a while and finally i just said okay i've i've, ga- I've got all the information i'm going to what google is is an intermediate authority um uh equifax is the root. And so what what R. Morton said made me curious to see whether Google had in fact quietly become a root authority in our browsers, but that's not the case. And I'm kind of glad because that's a little heavy-handed and a lot of responsibility too. Instead, they are an intermediate authority. Their certificate, the Google certificate authority or i think it's called google internet authority is signed by equifax that is a long time old school certificate authority a root ca and then this google internet authority is just they must have an electronic certificate generator i mean it's just it spews things out so it's constantly changing different servers different ips i mean it just basically these are it's very much dynamic. So I don't think it means anything bad that Certificate Patrol is being driven crazy by Google. It's just the the security model Google has for whatever reason is they do not have static certs. They're being dynamically generated and signed by their own intermediate authority that is in turn signed by Equifax. And <clears throat> he mentioned thought being replaced or reissued or I, I don't know. So maybe the chain, the chain of, of um, certificate authority chain uh, changed recently 
But at this point, because I do remember thought being around there, but at this point, it's just certificate to Google Internet Authority to the Equifax route is what I saw yesterday. All right. Chris Lewis, Jonesboro, Arkansas, found a really nice Chrome tree-style tabs. We know Steve loves tree-style <laughs> tabs. A new Chrome extension just came through my G Plus stream, says uh, Chris, that provides the tree-style tabs you say you love. Um, uh, it's a long URL, so just yeah. search so for Sideway Tree-style tabs, I guess, in the Google Chrome store. Yes, I meant to mention that, and I forgot to. Um, it looks very nice. It's uh, it's sort of like a sidecar that you dock along the side of the browser. And from looking at the page, I have not installed it or tried it yet. Um, it looks yummy. So if there's anybody who, like I, um, am, a, am a side tab addict over on Firefox... This is beginning to get there. And I noticed there were some other utilities that were doing the same sort of thing. So there's, we're beginning to see, you know, we're waiting for Google to come up with their official solution because they recognize there are tabaholics who, you know, organize themselves with their browser this way and that tabs across the top just don't do it. Um, so I just want to point this out for other people who feel as I do. Tabaholics. <laughs> I like it. Uh, Greg in Washington, D.C. wonders about a company impersonating commercial root CAs. On show 381, you discussed how a person could tell if a company is snooping on their SSL traffic by examining the certificate's chain of trust. Most companies issue their employees the hardware, so what's stopping them from installing their own root certificates and naming them after the commercial providers? A casual inspection of the certificate's chain of trust would show no anomalies, You'd need to check the fingerprints for all the root CAs to uncover this problem. What am I missing? Spinrite owner operator Greg. And Greg is not wrong. Really? Um, I don't know if the root store in our computers would allow two identically named That's what certificates. I think is the problem, right? Yeah, that there might be a naming collision there. But I'm not even sure that's true because you, with certificates, you can definitely have identically named certificates with different expirations because that's because I've, I've had that myself where I'm installing a new one and the old one is still there. It's, it's you know, it's about to expire or expired, but but I've seen them sitting side by side. So it might be very possible for a company to issue to themselves, create a certificate named Equifax CA and sign it and install it in people's machines right along with the normal Equifax certificate. And that might work. Um, then when their browser, let's see, how would this work? Then their browser would ask for the cert from a secure site it would provide the certificate from the fake Equifax. And I again, I don't know then how the matching works. Is it serial number matching or is it name matching? So I, I don't really have an answer. But I, I, it was it's a great question. And I'll bet you that we've got some listeners who have drilled down in this area where I haven't yet and uh, will probably provide me with some answer in our feedback. So I will I'll look for it and hopefully have an answer next time. 
Uh, here comes question eight from Matt. He's commuting somewhere near Chicago. <laughs> he was listening to 381 as well. During episode 381, a listener expressed some concern about their company monitoring their SSL traffic. And if it's actually monitored, are his last pass passwords still secure? You're correct in that the blob of data LastPass uses is secure, even without any transport encryption. However, what you missed is when the password is decrypted and sent back to another server as part of the login process. Uh-huh. If the listener's company is monitoring SSL traffic, then this password would be visible to corporate security software. In other words, you couldn't read all the person's passwords, but any of the passwords he uses, you could. I'll always look forward to the drive home on Wednesday. So I can listen to a new podcast. Please keep them coming. So Matt and a number of our listeners caught me on this. You know, I, I answered the question correctly. I assumed everyone understood part two. Well, bets are off but when I, you use the password. I should have made it more yeah. explicit. Yeah. So, yes, the question was, you know, is my last pass blob secure? My answer was, yes, it is. And it is. But, but the person who asked the question certainly deserved me saying what our listeners have added, which is, but when you use the individual passwords, they're not secure if, you're, if your company is, is filtering your SSL and, and spoofing the, uh, the provider. Andrew Cooper's in my new favorite city, Sydney, Australia. I got a rude surprise. First, Steve, I want to say blah, blah, blah. I was recently at a conference at a well-known museum here in Sydney. While there, I connected to their public Wi-Fi in, in order to check my email, among other things. But when I connected to Gmail, Chrome gave me an alert about the SSL certificate being used. I checked. And sure enough, the museum was trying to intercept the SSL session. Needless to say, I immediately turned off my LAN Wi-Fi radio and went without a connection for the day. Without the podcast, this would have been much more confusing, and I would have been less sure exactly what it meant. As always, thanks for the great podcast. and never miss an episode, Andrew. Wow. So I'm, imp I'm impressed. First of all, I thought, why would a museum do this? And I thought, oh, yeah, of course. Why? They're wanting to filter. They're wanting to do, uh, you know, no porn. porn and, yeah. and, you know, and, yeah, yeah. and bad content filtering. And so they bought some edge box that's sitting on the edge of their network, which and it just does this. You know, it's like that's what it's going to do. Um, so, uh, and I'm sure you know a museum being sort of a little bit like a school in the same way. They're they're just wanting to do content filtering for their LAN. Um, but I was impressed by Chrome. So you know, tip of the hat to Chrome for for noting that something is fishy here. You know, yeah, you you're trying to connect to Google, but you're not getting one of our certificates. So hmm. something's in the way. Wow. Very nice. Wow, something to pay attention to. And many people, by the way, I mean, this is this. I, we're getting so many questions about this idea of you know, am I really secure? Am I being spied on? Is my company filtering stuff? So that's why we just went through a bunch of these. Is that it's representative of a cross section of our listeners. Yep. And Tyler Larson and Scottsdale AZ suggests make key stretching hardware proof by burning memory. <laughs> okay. You're wow. going to have to explain this one to me. Yeah. You've already mentioned key hardening algorithms such as PBK, DF2, and Bcrypt, which hash and rehash passwords thousands of times to slow down cracking attempts. But these approaches all have an inherent flaw. You could still build a cheap hardware device 
or program an FPGA to dramatically speed up cracking. But someone solved this problem by making your algorithm require huge amounts of RAM. You can massively increase the hardware cost of building a dedicated password cracking device. CPU speed memory is extremely expensive, which means that building an ASIC for password cracking would be too costly to warrant the effort. That's the idea behind S-Crypt, used by Tarsnap. Reportedly, a hardware device implementing S-Crypt would be 20,000 times more expensive than an equivalent one implementing PBKD2DF2. Your thoughts? So this is our lead-in question for our next podcast after the Christmas special. Oh, joy. We have talked, I've touched briefly on this, uh, Attentive listeners with eidetic memories will remember the will remember the phrase "memory hard problems." Mm. That's the the cryptographic jargon for this kind of deal. They're, they're called memory hard problems. They are problems which are deliberately memory hard. That is not algorithm hard, but memory hard because Tyler. And the the author of Tarsnap, who designed Scrypt, and, and by the way, I'm very impressed. Scrypt, which you know just some random guy did, is now been adopted by the IETF and is heading towards RFC. So you know he did it right. And in fact, there's even I ran across there's even a a, a non Bitcoin currency, another currency that is using. This S-crypt algorithm, this memory hard algorithm, as proof of work. And remember, the proof of work is the whole concept behind Bitcoin, which is you know the the whole that's doing something that is really hard, and you want hardness to be scalable and not something that you can easily get around by doing hashing fast. And and so everybody is correct. Hashes are designed for speed so that they're not burdensome for normal applications. We've sort of repurposed them for scrambling passwords, but they're really not appropriate because look at what we're seeing with GPU breaking records all the time in the speed which they can hash. So the solution is somehow do something that is much harder, that is not just algorithmic. That, that takes it in a different dimension, and that dimension is memory, and that's our topic in two weeks, awesome. memory hard problems. Wow. That is going to be a hard problem. <laughs> Jan- we'll be back January uh, 3rd, I think. No, the 2nd, January 2nd, the day after New Year's Day, and that will be our special uh, return to the regular uh, security now. Next week, of course, we go back in time to 1990, and uh, that'll be a lot of fun. Steve Gibson's at GRC.com. That's where you'll find 16 kilobit versions of this show and transcripts as well. Thanks to Elaine. GRC.com. You'll also find Spin right there. The world's finest hard drive. Maintenance and recovery utility. And uh, lots of freebies as well. He's at SGGRC on Twitter. SGGRC on Twitter. And, of course, you can get the uh, show live here every Wednesday, 11 a.m. Pacific. Not next week, but the week after. 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern. Uh, 1900 UTC on twit.tv or download audio and video after the fact at the same spot and wherever finer podcasts are stored. Thank you, Steve Arino. Have a great Thank holiday. You. Will do. Thank you. It's great to be with you, as always, Leo. And, uh, you know, 
we got years and years more of this. <laughs> See you next year, Steve. Bye-bye. Security now.